friends, now is the time for the Dhamma talk. So what is the Dhamma? Well, of course, most people would respond, or Buddhist people would respond, oh, teachings of the Buddha. Then you've got to ask, well, what did the Buddha teach? He taught the Dhamma. So which came first, the Dhamma or the Buddha? chicken or the egg. Of course, as we, anybody who knows a little Dhamma, the Buddha himself had said that he simply rediscovered the ancient path or the eternal truths that lie within each being in terms of the nature of consciousness, the nature of happiness, the purpose of life, and so on. And he simply rediscovered that path to reconnect with the intrinsic truth in present moment awareness that is at the essence of consciousness and all life. So, but uh, to kind of keep it more simple, basically the Dhamma you know, refers to the laws of nature but especially the laws of nature that govern the body and the mind with its interaction with the world around it. And the Buddha was most specifically interested in the nature of suffering. Why do people suffer? What is the, the nature or cause of suffering? And what is happiness? Because, you know, all beings suffer, and beings are trying to, you know, find some kind of happiness or, or well-being. And in that pursuit of happiness, they encounter all kinds of suffering. With suffering connected with this physical body, having to get sicknesses, various diseases, broken bones, uh, decay, and eventually death. And but basically all living beings are trying to find happiness. Take even a small little ant. If it's crawling around on the ground and you put your finger down in front of the ant, it will stop and maybe turn around. Why is that? Because it senses some danger there. You know, wants to be free from pain and just go about its business and trying to get some food and uh, so on. 
So in something that tiny as an ant, there's something very alive. There's something very conscious. And again, it's that desire to live, the desire to uh, find happiness and to be free from pain. And when it comes down to us, you know, human beings, who's supposed to be the most evolved uh, living beings uh, that we know of as yet, uh, you know, we're also trying to find happiness. And people are doing all kinds of things to find happiness. Sometimes they find it, but often it's very short-lived, and they have to go searching for some other kind of happiness. And all beings fear uh, pain. So the, you know, the drive of all living life, basically, is that uh, search for happiness and the avoidance of, of pain. And that was also, you know, a motivation again for the, the Buddha. He was also interested in what is the nature of happiness and suffering. And what is the cause of suffering. Uh, but essentially the Buddha, through his experience, understood that actually happiness is already uh, the nature of the mind, the nature of pure awareness, the nature of uh, pure uh, consciousness. The consciousness that's been freed from greed, hatred, delusions, ignorance, and is reconnected with the intrinsic uh, nature of, the, of consciousness that we've uh, gotten lost from, that we've been disconnected from. But also, the, one of the laws of nature, the, one of the most important laws of nature in the Dhamma, is you know, the law of karma. And it's similar to the law of gravity. Come back to gravity again. Uh, you know, if you throw something up, what happens? It comes down sometimes with a big thud. So in the same way, if we throw something out of our mouth, it goes out in the world, it mingles with other people's minds and comes back to us like a, a boomerang to affect us in one way or another, whether with painful consequences or uh, you know, happy consequences. And if we throw something out of our body, like, you know, punch somebody in the nose or, you know, stick your tongue out at them or, you know, worse, then that also goes out and mingles uh, the external world and comes back to us as some kind of suffering. Or if we do kind acts with our body, that comes back to us as some kind of, uh, you know, pleasant effects. And then even our thoughts. Our thoughts are like radio waves. And just no matter if you're thinking about somebody or just thinking in general, uh, that goes out also. 
course, scientists doesn't really uh, recognize uh, that very much, but uh, it goes out and it mingles with other people's nervous systems and minds, even on an unconscious level. They might not know it. If you're thinking some negative thoughts toward them, they might not hear anything or even see anything, or you might be even miles away, but yet they may pick that up and unconsciously form some negative response toward you that they might not even understand why. So there's all kind of things going on. But anyway, this, these laws of, uh, uh, this is the law of nature, but it's also the law of karma. And it's summed up perfectly in the first two verses of the Dhammapada. That all actions are led by the mind. Mind is their master, mind is their maker. If one acts or speaks with an impure mind, then suffering will follow, as the cartwheel follows the foot of the ox. And in the same way, if one acts or speaks with a pure state of mind, then happiness will follow, as your shadow follows you around. So when those two verses really sum up the, the deeper meaning of the Dhamma, that it's our actions, thoughts, and speech that determine whether we're going to continue to uh, encounter suffering and conflicts and or uh, experience more well-being and happiness and kindness from others and, and so on. And another one of the laws of nature is impermanent that everything changes. Everything in our body is constantly changing. Everything in our mind is constantly changing. Everything in the world around us is constantly changing. And basically beyond our control. We try to manage things and prevent things, but ultimately we can't. Even our body. If it's prone to sickness, if the conditions are right, it'll get sick or it'll get a disease. Or if other conditions are right, it will get in, in accidents and encounter you know, all kinds of conflicts and problems. Because it's largely beyond uh, the control. And even death. The time and the manner of or the place of dying also, for the large part, is unknown. And it can happen at any time. So people are living a lot of fear in insecurity, because they think they should control it. You know, with modern medicine now, we think we should be able to control cancer, control this, control that. So everyone's trying, you know. If they fail, then, or if the doctor can't save somebody in the hospital, he's considered a failure, or she. But this is a law of nature that we can't control these things because it's the nature of the body and mind to change. So anyway, these are two of the you know, essential laws of nature that the Dhamma is concerned with. Uh, but even more fundamental than that, that you know, the, the cause of suffering even goes deeper than that. And it's, it's because of the alienation from our essential nature. 
as having been disconnected from the, the, the nature of consciousness itself, which we'll try to go into a little bit more. But we've been disconnected from the body. The mind and body have been, you know, disconnected. But in the beginning they were connected. For nine months in the womb, this body and mind were evolving simultaneously, together. At least according to the Buddhist theory of you know, life, the mother and father may provide the genes and so on for the initial little uh, you know, fetus, but it's the consciousness that's coming from another source that you know, inhabits that body and, and continues to make it grow. And from that first cellular division, when the cells divide, in the space of nine months, right, the fetus goes from a one-cell organism to a multi-billion cell organism. In nine months, I mean, wow. Tremendous energy. And with each cell division, consciousness is going into each succeeding cell. So essentially, every cell in the body has a consciousness, a kind of, an awareness, which is essentially the life force. And all it knew, it was the present moment. All that was occurring in the present moment, that force of you know, evolution. So the, the consciousness was intimately connected to the body. And it had its own wisdom. All those cells are connected in what I like to call the inner internet. You know, when the cells in your toe can communicate with the cells in your brain and other places. When something happens, it sends signals all over the place. Hey, do this, do that, do this. You know, you get a cut. Hey, stop the blood. Get a disease. Hey, fight that guy. So there was natural wisdom. But then what happens at birth? When the baby is born? The baby comes out and what's the first thing that happens? <coughs> Cut the cord. Now the baby becomes separated from its life force. And then you give it a name. Little Johnny, little Susie, and the relatives come over and So now the baby's getting all this attention. And the baby's consciousness at the time of birth, until about six months after that, doesn't have any centralized ego awareness. It has no thought of I or me, or really even of other. If you set the baby on the mother's stomach right after it comes out, it doesn't even know the difference between its body, its mother's body, basically nothing. But it feels things. The natural instinct for hunger comes in, so it searches for milk. Or the doc doctor hits it on the rump and goes, ah, feels pain. And 
But little by little, as more people come over and give it attention, what used to be oceanic awareness, actually child developmental psychologists even mentioned that the baby has a kind of oceanic awareness when it's born. I mean, there's no centralized sense of eyes. Its mind is just really basically wide open. Any mothers probably can attest to that. But little by little, with all the attention, people coming, calling it its name, you know, then it starts looking, and people start giving it stuff, and little by little, then it starts, you know, to grab the things. So a centralized, a, a little, a little nucleus of an I or a me starts to coagulate within that oceanic awareness. And it becomes basically lodged or a part of the, the mental process in consciousness. But it didn't have it. But it was created. And basically it, it gets cemented there and keeps growing and growing and growing uh, you know, the whole life. And so it gets dis- it's become disconnected from the body because now it's looking outside. Till, you know, a sweet little grandmother comes over and gives the baby a little sweet. So the baby tastes the sweet. Oh, you know, it gives a pleasurable feeling. And so it starts identifying the face of the grandmother with pleasant feeling. And then it starts hoping that the grandmother, that face, will come again in the future because it wants to get that pleasurable feeling again. The future is born there. And if a rough uncle holds the baby, maybe doesn't, you know, kind of squeezes it too hard or, you know, uh, has a gruff voice, and the baby might have an unpleasant feeling toward that face. And so it starts thinking that, I hope that face doesn't come in the future. It doesn't give me anything. And so the past and future are born right there in the mind. And we lose that present moment awareness. And it just keeps growing and growing. With the other senses, everything we've seen, heard, smelled, taste, touch. The mind is divided into things that give us a pleasurable feeling, and we like it, and other things that give us an unpleasant feeling, painful feeling, and we dislike it. And then we start projecting that, remembering the past, projecting it in the future with either desire or aversion or fear, because we have these ideas that things are going to happen. And so most people are living in the past and future. And, and we've been disconnected from the present moment. All problems in the world are problems of the past and future. Just think about it. Try to think of any problem that you have and see if it's not connected to the past or future. Come on, I'll give you 10 seconds. Anybody think of something? Any problem that's not connected with the past or future?
even the problem you know, the future meaning 10 seconds from now you got a pain in the leg and you think oh i want to move because you know if i sit another 15 seconds the pain will get worse <clears throat> so when the mind is in the present moment basically there's nothing to judge nothing to compare nothing to remember and that is basically that's happiness that's contentment but again we've been disconnected from that that natural uh, awareness present moment awareness of the mind and we've been locked into ego consciousness or I consciousness so every single thing that you do is is focused around I I'm going there I'm not going there I like this I don't like that look at me give it to me mine 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 just check it out very interesting but you know we've created that scenario it wasn't something really that we were born with and no one told us any better and we've lost the natural wisdom you know now if we uh, we get sick we have to go to a doctor to have him tell us what's wrong with us when back in the old days people would figure it out for themselves when they'd heal themselves by different methods or so on and or we've interfered with the body's natural functioning like interfered with the immune system by many different ways or uh, interfered with other natural processes of the body that then we have to take medicines for and give their own problems but basically it's uh, you know because we've lost that connection to the present moment and natural wisdom and the more we think about the future the more I, the mind is in the future the further you are away from truth from your own being from the present moment and most accidents are caused by unmindfulness by not being centered and grounded in the present moment aware of what you're doing so the common examples, right? Cutting some vegetables for your meal and you're daydreaming about something and cut your finger. Or walking down the street daydreaming and, you know, bump into somebody and knock their groceries on the ground. Or wander into the street and almost get hit by a car. It's because of unmindfulness. The mind is in the future or it's in the past. Brooding or fuming or whatever. And not really connected. So we, we cause unnecessary pain to this body. Let alone natural things like sickness and disease that we may not be able to control. You can control your, your actions. I mean, with training. And eliminate a number of, you know, pains and sufferings that come from 
being unmindful. And that's why learning how to become reconnected to the present moment is really the first stage of, of meditation. And another thing, you know, the mind causes unnecessary suffering to the body because of its, its cravings. So as a young person, you might have started smoking, innocently enough, perhaps. But then you get kind of, you know, caught by that. And then after some years of smoking, you know, the body starts, <coughs> you know, trying to tell you something. You go to light up a cigarette and unconsciously the body is saying, hey, wait, don't do that, don't do that. And the mind says, shut up. Right? So our mind actually causes us more harm than other people. We might get stabbed or shot, but it'll heal after some months or maybe longer. But the, the harm that we can do with our mind uh, to the body is more. And it comes from being disconnected, from not listening to the signals of the body. So, you know, if a person's really, uh, you know, the, the path leading back to the present moment is reached through this uh, body. Because as I mentioned before, the, the body is always in the present moment. And look, we carry this body around with us. 50, 60 or more kilos of flesh and bones. <laughs> So if we're going to carry that much around with us, why not use it for a good purpose? Instead of just trying to, you know, become a movie star or win beauty contests or, or whatever, muscle building, that, you know, people, you know, they, they take chemicals to try to get bigger muscles and that eventually kills them or uh, whatever. I'm just say, saying that just to point out these things. Uh, about the just the uh, you know that that disconnection from from the present moment and learning how to be more uh, friendly uh, toward the body. So <clears throat> the you know, but. No one has ever told us to keep the connection to the body. Did anybody ever teach you that in school? Did your mother and father ask you to do that? Did the priest in the church? Did the politicians? No. But you would think, wouldn't you? You would think that would be the most naturalist thing. Because that's the source of our mind. The mind operates through the body. Because our thoughts and feelings and impulses are coming from deep in the nervous system. And coming up through and then triggering off all kind of different interconnections and interactions. And then we get lost in our thoughts before we know it. 
How many of you got lost in your thoughts today? Hmm? Only half? Hmm. <laughs> so why did you get lost in your thoughts? Ever think about it? Because you didn't see them coming. Right? You're trying to focus on your breathing or just, uh, you know, repeating, uh, you know, sitting, breathing, sitting, breathing. But before you know it, without seeing it coming, the, you know, something enveloped the whole mind and took it away. Then maybe only when you heard my voice or something like that, oh my God. So we didn't hear the, didn't see the thoughts come because we're not grounded in the body. Because if you're deeply grounded in the body, then the moment some stimulation arises, you start seeing the early warning signals. And then you can be more alert. And then when something starts really arising, you can already kind of uh, be on uh, guard, you might say. You see that sleepiness starting to come up before it actually causes you to space out. You can straighten up the posture. You can take some few deep breaths. Or the pains arising. You can start to be aware of the mind starting to tense up around some painful feeling. You tell yourself, okay, relax. Pains arising. It's not that bad. Just relax. And learn how to observe it and so on. But most people don't have that kind of uh, cutting edge uh, uh, awareness because of you know, uh, not being uh, trained. And again, no one's ever uh, trained us in that. And you know the <coughs> the. Another very important uh, aspect of the Dhamma, or one of these natural laws, this is some statement of the Buddha, was that the world, the arising of the world, the ceasing of the world, and the path leading to the ceasing of the world is right within this five or six foot long body with its nervous system, memory, and consciousness. So basically what the meaning of it is that even though we might be physically on this earth, it's our mind that really creates the idea, the meaning of uh, that and creates our relationship of us in the world and how we react to the world. Because Let's say a person in a psycho psychotic state. They may be on this physical earth, but in their mind, they, who knows where they might be? Not on the earth. They could be having an illusion of being chased by monsters or so many things. Or people suffering deep other types of you know, depression and so on. Uh, you know, 
they're on the same earth as everyone else. But so this proves that it's in the mind. But who's taught us to care about the mind? Again, hardly no one. Now they're starting to, of course. Uh, but the Buddha was, that's what he was interested in. The modern science are interested in the physical world, how to manipulate the physical world. And they're interested in finding the exact time that the solar system or the Earth was created. You know, the Big Bang Theory. But what about the mind? They never mention how does the mind create the world. Only somebody like a Buddha would talk about that. And if you talk about that to a scientist, they'll, you know, I don't know what they'll say. But, you know, they'll probably just say, yeah, yeah Buddha. They give it short shrift for the most part. So it's tragic. You'd think this mind is the most powerful thing in the world. And this mind can be used for the greatest good, as we all know, but it can also be used for the greatest destruction uh, that we also know. Both within an individual person's mind and then collectively in the external world too. So th this mind is really the most powerful thing there is uh, in, the, in the world. And so we should really understand how it works. And this again is what the Buddha was most interested in especially in terms of how this mind creates our suffering or gets reconnected with the natural intrinsic uh, happiness. So the, you know, the practice of mindfulness, as I mentioned, it you know, comes from the Buddha's teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness most of you probably have heard about or even practiced. But it starts with mindfulness of the body. And then mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of, of the mind, thoughts, and then mindfulness of subtle dhammas. And it's a, it's a very purposeful and graduated method of training in order to gradually come back inward to reconnect with that underlying present moment awareness in the, in the well-being and the happiness and the wisdom that comes uh, through that. And, you know, meditation practice is essentially uh, like a, a scientific experiment. And even the Buddha took it as that. 
You know, when the Buddha first left the palace life in the search of truth, he went to different meditation masters and you know, trying to learn from them, and they taught him how to attain exalted uh, states of infinite space, infinite consciousness, you know, very, very expanded states of, uh, you know, formless jhana. And he thought, oh, wow, wow, you know, that's cool. But when he came out of it, he realized he hadn't changed much. And so he thought, wow, can this really be true? Something that's not like permanent? A permanent state? So he asked his teachers, this is all you got? And he said, yeah. So he left and he kept, you know, going to different teachers. Finally he said, enough is that. They're a human being, I'm a human being, let me go by myself. And that's when he went to the Bodhi tree, sat down, saying, I'm not going to get up from here until I've realized the, you know, the deepest uh, truths or liberation. Which he understood as liberation from ego consciousness. And so he took it as a scientific experiment. Found a nice tree, you know, the river flowing by, place to get food nearby. So he said, ah, I'm going to sit down. And he used the body as a laboratory to conduct the experiment. The experiment into the nature of happiness or the nature of life itself. So this body is used as the laboratory and the mind is the microscope. So you sit down in the laboratory and then you look down the microscope which is basically mindfulness and concentration. Now if you've ever been to a a science lab in high school or college, a physics lab, let's say, what's conspicuous about that? You know, the laboratory tables are usually very heavy, very strong, sturdy tables that are usually bolted to the floor so they cannot be moved or jiggled. And the microscopes also are usually securely fastened to the table. So they also cannot be moved or jiggled. Because if you try to look down a microscope and somebody keeps jiggling the table, you know, it's going to be very difficult to, to see down inside. Right? Wrong? We're on the same page. So in the same way, in the Buddha's instructions, in the mindfulness of the body, he says a person goes to a suitable place and sits down. He crosses the legs and sets the back erect. Ah, that's important. You see that? People forget that. Keep the back erect. So you do that first. That's attention to the posture. And then mindfully breathing in and mindfully breathing out. 
Uh, but anyway, so <coughs> as the, as you develop concentration, it's like turning up the power of a microscope. So anyway, the first thing is we see the mind is operating through the nervous system, very sort of deep within the nervous system. But normally, our mind is out there, or it's half drowsy, or half asleep. So we're, we're not aware of what's coming up inside. <clears throat> so by getting centered and grounded, connected to the nervous system, then you become aware of the sensations feelings and sensations that are coming through this body because that's what your mind reacts to. Mm -hmm. So by keeping the attention centered there long enough, uh, then you start to, it's like turning up the power of a microscope. You start to notice subtler and subtler, finer movements, vibrations, not only of the breath but other sensations uh, coming and going around that uh, that the mind is uh, reacting to. And so the body leads you to be able to observe sensations. When you start observing sensations and stop reacting to uh, the pleasant or painful ones, and you're keeping the body still, not kind of moving around and you know, scratching this and or hear a sound, look at that. It's like jiggling the table all the time. But as you, you know, hold the body still and the spine erect, then you know, you can start seeing more and more. And you see how the mind reacts to that, how sensations trigger off our thoughts our perceptions and thoughts. And so you can catch the thoughts, nip them in the bud, kind of catch them when they're first coming up. And when you are able to observe the first arising of a thought, it's still very weak. It doesn't have much power. And so just that mindfulness itself, oh, thinking, thinking, oh, desire, desire, aversion, oh, kind of just label the thoughts. That's enough to knock the wind out of them, to create some kind of objective detachment. And then that thought also is impermanent, and if you don't pay attention to it, it vanishes. And leaving again the mind in the present uh, moment. See, our thoughts are like an octopus, you know, an eight limbed octopus. If an octopus gets one tentacle on you, Without too much trouble, you can peel it off and toss it. But each time the octopus gets another tentacle on you, five, six, seven, or eight, then it drags you out to sea and drowns you and eats you. And unfortunately, that's what happens to far too many people. They get eaten by their thoughts. They get drowned in their thoughts or their emotions. 
Woe with me, woe with me. The whole world's coming down on my head. It's called drowning in Dharma language. And being eaten is a person might resort to ending the life simply because they don't know how to control their, their mind and the various types of uh, thoughts and mental states that are coming and going. Again, because we've never been taught that. In modern Western science, with all their emphasis on the external world, you know, they don't give much attention to the mind. I mean, to me, that's not being a scientist. That's not science. If you're not interested in the most powerful phenomenon in the world, which is the mind, I mean, wouldn't you think? But unfortunately, there's lots of conditions and cultural and other types of conditions that prevent, you know, people from opening up uh, to, you know, to probe and to discover uh, deeper meanings of life and especially the the mind. So again but it all it all begins with that first step of coming back to the body. To get reconnected, regrounded uh, to the body in the present uh, moment. Because it's always there. You know, you don't have to look far for it, right? When your feet pressing the floor, your buttocks pressing the cushion. Why can't you just keep your mind there and feel that? I mean, this, this body is our home. It's the, the real, the natural home for the mind. But again, we've... <clears throat> and it's very user-friendly. There's lots of pleasant and even blissful sensations that can be experienced in the body when the mind is feeling just feeling it sitting and breathing feeling the blood pulsing through your arteries and other types of sensations but people are you know they're only interested in the outs- outer things on the outside of the skin so they look in the mirror and they get everything right on the outside but they don't care about connecting to the inside. The only time is when they're feeling pain and then they, they're struggling to get away from it. So people want to, they want to hug other bodies. They want to, you know, feel other bodies, not to feel themselves. So, anyway, really that's, because once you uh, get connected and feel that kind of organic connection to the body, so very pleasant. And you're not thinking about the past or future. And that's why then the mind becomes more uh, peaceful. It becomes, you know, happy because again, all problems are problems of thinking about the past or future. And so, you know, in any posture or in any movement of the body, 
any activity, you know, to always uh, remind yourself of, you know, what is this body doing right now? And seeing the, the hindrance or the distraction to, to let go of that and to keep coming back. But it's a training. Mindfulness is a training, just like lifting weights. It's like a muscle, you could say, a mental muscle. If you want to lift weights, people have to train every day or run a marathon, right? Because if you stop for some days or a week or more, then the muscles get uh, weak again. So it's the same way with the mind, with the exercise of learning how to be mindful, alert, and concentrated. Because it's not the habit. No one ever trained us in that. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of uh, training and continuous kind of training. That's why in a retreat like this, you know, where you have, a, you know, it's a whole week, it's that, that momentum, the continuity and momentum of learning how to keep coming back recognize when the mind has gotten disconnected, either through drowsiness or distractions of pain or sounds or uh, thoughts, and just realize that you know, the body's right there. And to come back, to get re-centered, re-grounded. And even if you do that over and over, a hundred, a thousand times even, and one meditation period. That will be uh, the training, the gradual uh, retraining, reprogramming uh, the mind, but in a good way. So, <clears throat> anyway, I think that that might be uh, enough for this Dhamma talk. And uh, if you have any questions about anything that uh, we might have mentioned or anything that, you know, about meditation practice, and you can write them down on the slips of paper and for the evening uh, questions and answers uh, period. Okay, to, to carry on the training just for a moment. We're going to stand up in a, in a minute, but just for a moment. Just take a deep, slow breath, close the eyes, and try to touch base back to the body in the present moment, letting go of that external focus. Just take a slow, deep breath, and you expand your chest. Hold the air in the lungs a few seconds. Feel the body sensation. And slowly let out the breath.
Okay, now you can slowly unfold the legs and slowly come up to a standing position, do a little standing awareness. Don't rush the standing, try to do it step by step. Let's come to the door of the laboratory, the external surface of the body, the buttocks pressing this seat. Feet pressing the floor, touching together. Hands and fingers touching. Feel that natural inward curve of the lower spine. Try to find that center of gravity of the head and spine over the hip. Just mentally kind of etch or photograph that feeling of the straight posture in the mind's eye. So it has a reference sensation come back to feel the clothing touching the outer skin in different places. Feel the head balanced on top. Keeping the chin up level to the floor. Imagine you're balancing a stack of books on top of the head. Feel the 
your lips touching together Feel the tongue, the teeth, the gums, and the mouth. Feel the outer nose. The prickling sensations on the outer nose. Feel the eyes resting in the sockets and the eyelids stretched over the eyeballs. Just notice those subtle eye movements. Relax the eyes. Allow the awareness to kind of expand back out to the edge of the body. You feel the outline of the body. And gradually opening the door to the laboratory. Gradually go inside, focus in on the breathing process, take a few deep slow breaths, feel those subtle sensations of expanding and contracting. Feel the relaxing, pleasant sensations of the out-breath, following that out-breath down to the in. Feel the last air going out. And the pause. 
looking down the eyepiece of the microscope. Peering down to the body to feel the breathing. All the sensations of the expanding in-breath from beginning to end. And the brief pause. All the contracting sensations of the out-breath from beginning to end. And the brief pause. So many little sensations you can notice. With each breath, just turning up the power of the mental microscope. Mindfulness and concentration. If it helps you to concentrate, there's a technique of counting your breaths from one to ten. And the next expanding of the in-breath, counting one. And the contracting of the out-breath, also counting one. And the expanding of the next in-breath, counting two. Contraction of the breath, counting two. The next in-breath, three. Out-breath, three. In breath four, out breath four, in breath five, out breath five. In breath six, out breath seven. 
out-breath sick. In-breath seven. Out-breath seven. In-breath eight. Out breath in. In breath nine. Out breath nine. In breath ten. Out breath ten. Reversing the count in breath nine, out breath nine, in breath eight, out breath eight, in breath seven. Out breath seven. In breath six. Out breath six. In breath five. Out breath five. In breath four, out breath four, in breath three, out breath three, in breath two. Out breath two. In breath one. Out breath one. It's feeling the vibration. If you still have more thoughts, you can repeat that counting again by yourself. And just continue with the basic awareness, knowing in, in, sitting, out, out. Sitting, moment by moment, breath by breath.
stay awake, alert, turning up the power of the microscope. Notice subtler, finer, detailed sensations. The breathing body. Be awake for subtler thoughts, wantings, urgings, welling up in the mind. Time to time, take a few deep, slow breaths to re-energize, re-ground in the body, present moment. Be alert for different unpleasant or painful sensations arising. Grab the mind. Observe them as they well up, last a few seconds, longer vanish.
Keep the body open and soft and the mind open and soft. Just moment by moment, breath by breath. In, in, sitting, out, out, sitting, thoughts come and go, sounds come and go, various sensations of pain, pleasure come and go. Sleepiness comes and goes. These are all just a continual change of impermanent world through this body and mind. And just underneath all of that change or pain or chaos, is the ever-present vibration of awareness. If we lose that connection to the breathing body, to the present moment, then the mind gets easily lost and tossed about on the stormy seas of past, future, greed, hatred, and deluded thoughts, fear, worry, anxiety. Those are all just bubbles floating through the mind. Just cultivate your constant, trustworthy companion of the breathing body. It never leaves you. It's always there, inviting you to take a rest. In, in, sitting, 
organic vibration, the breathing body, a natural home for consciousness. Please can continue sitting longer if you have good awareness. Otherwise, when ready, slowly, mindfully stand up. After standing a few minutes, go for walking. You're on the sides or in the dining hall or outside. In about an hour, maybe a bell. We start the yoga, afternoon yoga session about 5.15. Anywhere when you hear the next gong, you want to do the yoga, come to the dining hall. Try to continue moment by moment the mindfulness of the body, bending, stretching, standing, walking.